So should you as a brand advertise on the sleeve of a soccer player? Well, do your users watch soccer and do they care? Will they engage with that sort of marketing? Same goes with SEO. If your users are boomers and they don't use Google, then I don't know that I would put an effort into SEO. If your users are Gen Z and they only use TikTok, then I don't know that I put effort into SEO. If your users use TikTok, should maybe you could put effort into like optimizing on TikTok as a search engine because TikTok is a quasi search engine. That's that's the way I'd approach it. So it's not necessarily product-led SEO, but it's really marketing around your users. And product-led SEO is one way of doing that. Hi, and welcome to the Optimize Podcast. My name is Nate Matherson, and I am your host. On this weekly podcast, we sit down with some of the smartest minds in content marketing and SEO. Our goal is to give you perspective and insights on what's moving the needle in organic search. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Eli Schwartz. Eli is one of the best in SEO and the author of a popular book, Product-Led SEO. Eli is a growth advisor and SEO strategic consultant to a number of fantastic high-growth companies. He's worked with some incredible teams at companies like Tinder, Coinbase, WordPress, Fair, Gusto, and others. In our episode today, Eli and I chat about the current state of SEO, including the recent algorithm updates, because I have to ask, and then we go deep into product-led SEO. This is a special episode. And this episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by Positional. If you don't know by now, my name's Nate and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. And I'm really excited to announce that we just launched our content analytics tool set. This has very quickly become my favorite feature. It's one that I've wanted for the last 10 years. And it's really effective in identifying which pages on your site users might be having a low quality experience on. What we do is we track metrics like scroll depth, bounce rate, and time on page to score your pages and then allow you to go deeper to see where within a piece of content, for example, which paragraph is causing people to leave or where, for example, you might want to add a call to action within that page. This tool set is called Content Analytics. It's our newest feature. I'm stoked about it and you should be too. Thank you so much, Eli, for coming on the Optimize podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Nate. So the first question I ask all of our guests is, how did you get into the world of SEO? Accidentally, like everyone. I got into SEO because I was, you know, took the first job I was offered right out of school. I was working for a lead generation company, working with clients or actually partners that were able to generate traffic online and turn that traffic into leads. And my role was finding new of these lead generation partners. I was an affiliate manager and convincing them to sell their traffic to the company I was working for. And the most interesting people were the SEO people. They were like, all right, we buy this domain and we do this magic and then we make $50,000 a month. So I was like, teach me your ways. You know, they sent me, um, I don't know how many of your listeners will know this, but there was a book called SEO book written by Aaron Wall. I think he's the OG of OGs and SEO. So he wrote this book about how to do SEO. I, I devoured that book. Uh, there was, you know, all these things that used to exist. Yahoo Site Explorer. I learned everything from my affiliates about how to do SEO. And within a few months, I declared myself to be an SEO expert, like like everyone who spends a few months doing SEO. And I, I started trying to take on client businesses. And no one really wanted to work with me because I didn't actually have a ton of SEO expertise, but I started building my own sites. And that's how I really got into it. By having my own sites, I was able to look at, again, I'm really aging myself here, but I was able to go into the HTTP logs and look at the keywords people were typing in and showing up on my website. Didn't even know Google Analytics existed. 
didn't know well it's called webmaster tools existed didn't know any of that and then i was hooked i was like this is this is really cool i like getting to people's heads i like building things that people search and they find and that's how i got there and I, my next role was an actual full-time seo manager for a startup and then kept growing from there i'm so curious what was that lead gen affiliate space that you started in it's still it's still around it's called quinn street so quinn street their primary business now is insurance so anything in the insurance space they own so if you're on an insurance website and you want to know if Quinn Street owns it, just go into their privacy policy and it'll say like your data belongs to Quinn Street. So insurance.com, carinsurance.com, pretty much everything you'll do in the insurance space is run by Quinn Street. They used to be very, very large in education, like for-profit education, University of Phoenix, those kinds of you know businesses. I think it's that's much smaller. The other thing they were huge in and which is part of my role was they were huge in mortgage. And I had a teeny, teeny, tiny role in the subprime crisis because I worked with affiliates that drove like the dirtiest, worst leads ever for subprime. And then Quinn Street sold them to banks that are now no longer in existence because that's what they built their entire businesses on. That's so interesting. It's a small world. I spent the first seven years of my career building a comparison shopping website for financial products. Insurance was our third largest category. So it, it, I believe at times we worked with Quinn Street, other times we competed against them. And you know, the first question I have is what's going on in SEO? So I think there's about to be huge change in SEO. So the, the big change in SEO is going to be around Google's generative AI. I now predict that that's going to come out in early January rather than anytime this year, because Google has a code freeze where they don't launch any new code to users or any new experiences that would cause things to break. Now, if something's already baked, so they've already like built this whole code base and all it is is allowing users to use it, they're more likely to do it. So then an example of that might be like an algo update. So sometimes there will be algo updates that happen in December that make people really upset, but they don't, I don't think they build those algo updates and test those algo updates in a way that they would need to fix a bug or roll back code past code freeze. So the code freeze typically happens right around Thanksgiving when people start to go on or Googlers start to go on vacation for Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, obviously the holiday season. So people are in and out. So they freeze code. We're coming up on that. And I don't know that Google, from what I know, that Google has done the right amount of testing that they would launch generative AI into search. And therefore, given that we're about to hit code freeze and they didn't do all those pieces, it seems almost impossible that generative AI in search SGE, as they call it, search generative experience, will come out in 2023. So that just basically puts us in 2024. I mean, I think Google wasn't keen to launch it anyways in 2023, certainly Q4 of 2023, because that could hurt their revenues for this quarter. Q1 2024 is a lot safer for them. So I think that's going to be the, the biggest change potentially in my career around SEO. Like that is going to change everything around SEO completely. But leaving that aside, what's happening in SEO is Google is getting a lot better and a lot stricter on the things they always focused on. So like quality of content, ignoring bad things. I don't know that they really roll out penalties as much anymore. And there's been a lot of that this year. So the helpful content updates, as they call them, have really been around addressing low quality content and demoting low quality content that should have already been demoted. So you'll see on LinkedIn, someone will post a screenshot and say, hey, here's my site. I use generative AI and I've, I've got a million you know, pages and look at all the traffic and then it plummets because it really shouldn't have worked. And they were able to like find some sort of gap in, in the way the algorithms worked. And then 
helpful content update comes out and it nukes it. So a lot of that, but I don't think that's necessarily new. It's just Google tightening the screws that already existed. So what what's happening in SEO is I think business as usual. Okay, I've got so many questions. The first is, do you think Google wants to roll out an AI SGE experience or were they like pushed into it and now not totally sure? Like, do, do you think they'll actually roll one out in 2024? Oh, 100%. They have to roll it out. So they didn't want to roll it out. At Google, I mean, you talk to any Googler about LLMs, large language models, and they'll say, oh, we wrote the original paper on it. And like the original OpenAI employees were all Googlers. That may be true. And it may be that LLMs and generative AI is very good for users. I think it is good for, I think generative AI in search is good for users. However, it upends Google's entire business model. Google was created in the late 90s and was all about 10 blue links. Now it's seven blue links or, you know, continuous scrolls. So it's a million blue links, whatever it is. Generative AI is this new experience and companies, Google as an example of any company doesn't like to do new things. You know, CPG companies don't like to launch new packages unless they have to or need to refresh a brand. Everything, everybody likes things to kind of stay the same because you don't know what will happen when things change. So Google's primary business is search and primary way of making money off that primary business is ads. And generative AI is just a total paradigm shift of something new. So Google didn't want to launch it. I still don't think they, they want to, but they have to. And the reason they have to is because generative AI is a great way of getting answers, getting data. Like a lot of what we do in search is getting answers to things. And OpenAI with ChatGPT is an alternative. It's the first real viable alternative to Google that has existed in a very long time. Google, you know, we're middle of this, this uh, lawsuit with Google with, against the, with the DOJ saying Google is a, a monopoly. Google's defense is, Oh, we're not a monopoly. Haven't you heard of Bing or DuckDuckGo or like these other search engines? But those were not really viable alternatives. Bing is okay, but it's not great. Uh, DuckDuckGo is not great at all. Baidu or whatever, any other search engine, these aren't, they're not viable alternatives. With ChatGPT, there are many people that are using ChatGPT and they're getting answers to the queries they pose to ChatGPT and they get the answers they want. They don't need to use Google. So that is a threat. Google is very scared about that. Now, are we seeing users flock from Google to ChatGPT? No, I don't think the majority of users even know it exists. It's a very techy, early adopter kind of thing. I don't know that senior citizens or the entire baby boomer group are big ChatGPT users, but that's not to say that they might not become ChatGPT users. Google, as a you know publicly held company, can't just hope that no one discovers ChatGPT and stops using Google. They've got to be proactive about it. So that's why, like it or not, Google does need to have a ChatGPT alternative to introduce users to generative AI responses and have them doing it on Google rather than go and discover an alternative. So again, I, I think they will launch it. There's reasons they haven't launched it. I think one of the big reasons they haven't launched it is they haven't answered all the right questions around legality, like plagiarism, responsibility for content. Of course, another big open question, which I don't think holds them back as much is how do they monetize it? I think, you know, again, Google might have to launch it even without proper monetization, but they have not launched it yet, but they will, and they do have to launch it. So what do we do as SEOs? You mentioned that SEO is going to fundamentally change and you stopped there, but I want to unpack it. What's going to happen? 
So the reason SEO is going to change is a lot of things that SEOs did were not necessarily in the service of users. They were as in, it was in the service of themselves. So there are many things that are answered by generative AI that are good answers. And prior to generative AI, there are, you would search those, those kinds of things and you would find many, many different results. For example, you have a headache. Are you dying of brain cancer or do you just need to take Tylenol? So now if you go ask that question to generative, or not, you just put in headache into Google, Google will give generative responses and say a headache is, you know, likely because you're stressed or you're dehydrated or you're coming down with a cold and um, experts recommend that you take a nap and take Tylenol. That's it. That's the answer. Now, previous to generative AI, you would put in headache and then you'd get like, you know, a knowledge graph result, which a picture or something, but maybe you didn't trust it, didn't have enough answers. And then you'd have 10 blue links and you would have Healthline and you would have um, Cleveland Clinic and all these websites that have health content. And you'd have to go through like four pages to discover like, you know, headaches have been around since the caveman days. And these are all the facts about headaches and it's all loaded with text and uh, take a nap and take some Tylenol, right? So like they all say the same thing. Headaches are very, very common and not necessarily a, a something that anyone needs very specific content, but all the results said the exact same thing. So that's where Google's really going to upset things because they're going to give the generative response. Now, prior to generative AI, this is not structured data. It's not a very easy thing for Google to go give the, give this kind of content because it doesn't come from a structured database in a in knowledge graph. They do some health stuff in a knowledge graph and headache is one of those things that I think they do a little bit of. But with generative AI, they're in basically taking unstructured data, which is all this written content, and turning it into structured data, which is here's the standard response. This is what you do about headache. So that's why I think it upsets the entire SEO Apple cart because you can't really build content that's generic and commoditized. You have to do very specific things. So what do we do? Think about the user. So whatever business you're in, you want to understand what is it that your user needs to understand. So if you are a pediatrician's office, and I don't think you need to replicate the entire, I don't know if there's a Wikipedia on health, but you do not need to replicate the entire Wikipedia on health just for your website. You should be doing great SEO for your specific target area. Explain why you're the best pediatrician in the entire neighborhood. These are all the people reasons people love you. And what are the things that make people want to convert to your pediatrician website and come into your office? So that's what SEO should always have been done, been doing in the past. But SEO has gotten away with these other things to do things that build traffic because it's been rewarded. And it's not necessarily in the best interest of the user. So I think we're going to go back to the way marketing and SEO should be, which is you create marketing for users. You don't create marketing for search engines. I totally agree. I always tell our customers, you have to create content that's uniquely valuable or differentiated. And I, I think a lot of the content optimization tools are great, but like the end result can often just be like a cookie cutter piece of content that doesn't actually add any new value. And I think we've started to see in like some of those SGE placements that they're they're trying to pull results that maybe offer unique value or a unique approach. Do you think SEO will soon become a game of trying to like optimize for those SGE placements or is that just going to be like a totally pointless exercise? Oh, so I actually don't think there's any value in optimizing for SGE unless you're optimizing for brand. So let's, let's go, let's do insurance. Cause you and I are familiar with insurance. I, I mean, I, I, it's been many years since I've done any SEO around insurance, but let's say for insurance, insurance is like absolute commodity. Everyone needs insurance. 
you don't really understand the nuances of the different insurance plans until unfortunately you need it. But otherwise, like upfront, it's just a price, right? It's like, this is Geico, this is progressive. Like, you know, that, like, I know more about the ads for the insurance companies than the back end and then like how they pay and like how, what, what their customer service is like. So absolute commodity. So from an SEO standpoint, if you're doing SEO for insurance on something that everyone believes is a commodity, then how do you do SEO? So the way everyone's done it to date is they load up their content with insurance terms. There's a company, I met them uh, six, seven years ago. They asked me about SEO for insurance. I pointed out to them that they could not do this commodity approach because Progressive, State Farm, Geico are actually older than Google. And they've been doing SEO longer than Google existed. So this startup was not going to be able to out SEO, Geico, Progressive, State Farm. They didn't listen to me. So they they loaded up their content. They did their built their website. They built it all around these search terms. They did skyscraper tactics. So instead of like Geico has a thousand words on what insurance in California is like, they're like, we're going to have 1500 words. And then they bought lots of links. And that was, all worked fabulously until a couple of months ago when Google decided their content was not very helpful and demoted all of it. So now they have no SEO strategy. They don't get any SEO traffic at all. So that's a, it's commodity space. What you have to do is go back to the users and understand what is it that we need to create. When you sell your insurance, why did someone choose State Farm? Oh, you're better service, you're better customer service. That's the, that's the way the SEO content is. So now when it comes to commodity search and answering your SGE question, so the query is car insurance or car insurance, California, or car insurance, New York, SGE can just basically say, these 10 companies do insurance in New York. Now, if you search something specific, it will say these companies do this specific, these car insurance companies do this specific thing. Again, no reason to actually go to any of the websites. Now, brand search is where that matters. So now you want to create the content that says the right thing about your brand. So now you're showing up in the SGE. But to actually have your content about like what do liability limits mean show up in SGE, that's meaningless. The user has received their answer and they do not need to go to a website for any further information. They do need to go to the website if it mentions your brand, like, oh, the general, oh, the general is a great insurance company for people that have poor credit or something. So, and by the way, I think insurance is actually an interesting space right now. There's been a lot of carnage, um, like uh, over the last few months, I've got a few friends and still in the insurance space. And there's just been a lot of volatility in that category from what I've seen. But in your example, like that website, that's just been like totally annihilated in like the last few updates. We know that search is fundamentally changing from here. What do they do? Do they like, is your recommendation to them to just like give up? Is there, I, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm actually curious, like, is there, is, is there anything they can do at this point or are they just like done? It's not giving up. So I, I don't think SEO is the right fit for everyone. I think that the marketing is the right fit for everyone. So if you're in, if you're in an insurance space and your goal is to acquire, you know, a thousand new insurance leads per month. I think acquiring a thousand new insurance leads per month with SEO is very difficult. I would take the money you thought you were going to spend on SEO and spend it on paid marketing, whether it's Google or Meta or LinkedIn or, you know, newsletters or conferences or trade shows, like do that. Like, I believe like you have, your goal is that KPI. Your goal is that conversion Buy that conversion, wherever you have to buy it. And I don't think it's it's always going to be the most successful in SEO just because it's quote unquote free. Yeah. So it sounds like in, for certain companies in certain industries, like SEO might just not be as good of a channel going forward. Would that summarize it well? 
not going forward, going backwards too. I think it's never been a great channel in highly commoditized, generic sort of search spaces. So if you are in an e-commerce space and you're selling um, the exact same thing that Walmart, Amazon, Target, Best Buy, like the biggest online sellers sell, I don't know that I would be, I would bet on you competing against them. You can give it a shot, but like, that's not like, you know, knocking down gorillas is not the best place to go. I would go in if you are selling something that you're, you're it's a niche product that you're the best to sell at selling it. You can deliver it the fastest. You have the best price, then you should go against them. But if you're selling the exact same thing for the same price, and you probably do not have the delivery muscle that Walmart and Amazon have, like Amazon can deliver something same day. So I wouldn't do SEO. So just as a follow-up question. So say you're a company in a very like technical space, like say you're in like developer tools, you're on the forefront of like a new technology. And like maybe today, not just like a whole lot of content exists in that category, or it's, it's changing quite frequently, or it would be a, a query that would be very hard to serve with an instant answer. For those companies, is search still a good channel or is like the writing on the wall that like search will eventually not become a good channel, even for those companies in, in very complex or technical industries? The decision there is based on the user. So developer tools is a great example. I met a company last week who built a startup for developer tools, something around generative AI. Of course, actually everything's around generative AI. Like it goes without saying, it's a, it's a, it's a startup. So therefore it's generative AI. We talked about like how they should be using SEO, whether they should be using SEO. And I asked them questions about their ICP, like their, their customer profile. And the buyer of their product, because they want to sell to enterprises, is a CIO. So person that has that title of CIO at a company, at an enterprise, and there aren't that many of them, right? Startups don't have a CIO. Non-technical companies don't really have a CIO. They have a CEO that makes decisions. So it, it really shrinks down like who they're targeting. Then I asked, so how does the CIO discover tools? Does the CIO Google stuff? Is the CIO that, that person that themselves? Are they going to be doing a PLG motion of like Googling stuff and then telling their users to do it? Or does the CIO discover things because their friend network tells them because they, you know, they go on Slack and ask other friends or do they go to trade shows? It really comes down to like, how do people discover things? So I, I think there are many spaces SEO will absolutely exist. E-commerce SEO will absolutely exist. Information products depends on what the information SEO will exist, but SGE will now upset that because you'll get the answers from SGE. So I don't think the writing's on the wall anywhere. It really comes down to the user and how users used to be and will continue to be discovering information. Now, if the way they used to discover information was they had to go to 10 blue links and they were brand agnostic, they clicked the first result because it was first and everyone was the same, then I would be concerned about SGE upsetting that. If the users looked for a very specific brand, then there's brand equity there, then your brand is, is strong and it doesn't really matter if SGE upsets it. If the it's an entire research process, if like, it doesn't matter who ranked number one, I'm actually gonna click all 10 results because I wanna discover which product to buy, then it you know then that's the way you're gonna do things. As an example, like another commoditized space where I think SEO will absolutely exist is travel. So travel, there's very, very little difference between Kayak, Booking, Expedia, Travelocity, they're all like, you know, we're agnostic to like, oh, you did a search for, I don't know, Miami hotels and kayaks number one. So you go to kayak and book the exact same holiday in, or you go to like, you know, next search it's hotels.com. So you go book the exact same Ritz. It really doesn't matter. So SGE, I don't think it really upsets that because 
I don't see that Google wants to allow you to book. So I am seeing Google going in on some of these searches, but the SEO still remains because these sites like that, they provide the better experience. Now, but it, there's no brand equity. So I, I'm, I'm just going to click whatever's number one. If it's hotels or if it's Expedia, more than likely, you probably have an account and have booked in the past with all of them. So you just go and book wherever it is. It, you know, you can, could build brand loyalty, of course, but that's outside this conversation. That's outside SEO. So I, I think the question is like, will we continue to use SEO? We absolutely will continue to use SEO. It's just some of this will be upset by SGE in the sense that like it was just information you were seeking rather than a product or service. So do all roads now then point to product-led SEO in like that example you provided? Like, is that where companies will be able to succeed with a product-led SEO strategy versus like a very commoditized, like what is type strategy? Yeah. So when I wrote product-led SEO, I was prophesizing um, eventual generative AI. I knew all that. No, I'm just kidding. My hypothesis and thesis around product-led SEO is that SEO experiences should be created for users. I don't know that everyone could still use product-led SEO. I don't think it's appropriate for everyone to use product-led SEO. Like the way I envisioned it, it's like a product. You're building something big, like it's Zillow. Like that's the example I have in my book. It's a big product. It's not like a you know, a light touch of like, let me just create this little search landing page. It's it's a real product. So I don't think everyone should build product-led SEO, but I do think everyone should always be creating marketing in general around the users that will engage and respond to that marketing. SEO as a marketing channel, and I know I, I always advocate that SEO is a product. And the reason I advocate for SEO being product is because you get more levers. But in truth, SEO is organic as a marketing channel. Like that's the way you're bringing in and acquiring users. So as a marketing channel, the same way you build your marketing around how users will engage, your SEO should be around how users will engage. Like an example I always use is whenever you watch like a, a European soccer game, I they call it football. You watch it. You're like, the, there are so many places they advertise. There's incredible. Like we're not creative in America with our sports. You like, we put an ad like on the top of like the basketball hoop in an NBA game. You're like, wow, that's, that's cool. We created a new ad unit. And then you go into like, watch a European soccer game and like the sleeve, like the, the like rim on the sleeve is advertising and like all over the, the entire field is advertising like so should you as a brand advertise on the sleeve of a soccer player well do your users watch soccer and do they care will they engage with that sort of marketing same goes with seo if your users are boomers and they don't use google then i don't know that i would put an effort into seo if your users are Gen Z and they only use TikTok, then I don't know that I put effort into SEO. If your users use TikTok, should maybe you could put effort into like optimizing on TikTok as a search engine because TikTok is a quasi search engine. That's that's the way I'd approach it. So it's not necessarily product-led SEO, but it's really marketing around your users. And product-led SEO is one way of doing that. So what is product SEO? Real quick, just for our listeners. Oh, great. I'm glad we got to it. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> product-led SEO is building a product around your your users, around your search users. So the way most people do SEO is they look at SEO metrics, they look at keyword research, and then they build their SEO for that. So when we're doing product-led SEO, you're looking at your users and saying, what experience are my users looking for when they look for me or what I, I offer, my product, my service, my brand? And building a product 
that is the home for that search. So instead of building something based on data, like, oh, here's a keyword, so I'm gonna create a landing page, I'm gonna create a content, piece of content. It's really, what do my users want when they're doing when they're going onto a search engine? So in my book, Product-Led SEO, I use Zillow as an example, because what Zillow does, and Zillow is, I think, one of the best examples of this. Zillow has a page for every single residential and I probably even commercial address in entire America. That's something that could only be found on SEO. So what Zillow did was they took 50 steps back when they created this product. And they said, when someone goes and searches, they want to buy a house. Ultimately, I'd like to sell them a real estate lead, or I'd like to sell them a mortgage. But where, where do we go higher in the funnel? So this user first wants to search for a house they want to buy, or they want to look at their neighbor's house. When they do that search, what are they looking for? So when someone when someone did that search prior to Zillow, you found MapQuest, right? Not Google Maps, but MapQuest. You found like how to get to that house. Zillow created something that when they did that search, they found the house. So first and foremost, there's the address, there's the picture, maybe there's some government information around like how big the house is. And then Zillow created a product called their Zestimate of like, how much is this house worth? So that's a product they have created just for the SEO user. That product is not like, of course the product is available and you can find it on their website if you navigate to it, but it's not something they can advertise for. Like it's not scalable to bid on every single address in America. So that is a product that is created for the SEO user. And I think this exists in every space, in every vertical, in every kind of product where there is an SEO user, you could create a product for that SEO user. I love with Zillow in particular, how with their pages, they do such a good job of addressing like different search intents when the search intent to you might not be totally clear. Like if someone's Googling an address, like maybe they own that home and maybe they're looking for an estimate. Maybe they're interested in buying that home. Maybe they're a realtor who's looking for like tax comp data or many of the other things that Zillow will provide on their page. They do a really good job of identifying like what are those different things that that person who's landing on an address page could be looking for? And I haven't read your book. I need to. I'll be reading it very soon. Would you agree that like those pages do a very good job of satisfying different intents? And, and maybe that's one of the reasons they're so successful or am I just totally off base here? Yeah, no, no, it's not. And it's not an accident. Amazon itself is an example of product-led SEO. So if you want to like take, like look at the two approaches towards SEO and use Amazon as an example. So approach number one is I'm going to, I'm selling, I don't know, hoverboards. So, okay. So I have a, an e-commerce website. I want to sell hoverboards and now I'm going to build really long form content. This is the old approach is a content-led SEO approach. Keep putting hoverboard into a keyword research tool. And keyword research tool spits back like, oh, hoverboard is your product. You know, some related keywords might be like hoverboard price and hoverboard safety. So now I built this content piece of content and I load up my entire piece of content with these keywords that was spit back. And now I'm going to buy links and I'm going to build links and I'm going to build it to this piece of content. And my hope is that when someone lands on this piece of content, they're going to click and buy hoverboards from the e-commerce part of my website. What Amazon did is they didn't do any of that. They didn't write any of this content. They built all their SEO best practices into the product itself. So it's a product-led SEO approach. So they architected an entire website around link flow. They architected an entire website around having amazing, not pillar pages, which you do for content, but category pages. So there's a, I mean, hoverboard 
I don't know what category go into like wheels. It goes into the wheels category. So they built a great wheels category. They built a great hoverboard category. Underneath the hoverboard, they might have very specific brands, but each of those pages has SEO baked into the very product itself. And that's why I think Amazon won e-commerce SEO. When you look at their competitors like Target, Best Buy, Walmart, they did not because like I've had friends and known people and have interviewed people and hired people from all three of those companies and they did a very much of a content-led approach. They allowed SEO, like they ignored SEO on the product part, like the, the product itself, the e-commerce itself is run with like out real SEO oversight, but the SEO team, they really focused on the content. Like how do we load in like keyword rich product descriptions and put that onto the product page? Or how do we write like long form content, which has all our keywords and hopefully someone clicks over to the product page. But Amazon, SEO was the product. Like SEO was baked fully into the product from beginning to end. How much of Amazon's success in the SERPs do you think is due to people just wanting to buy something on Amazon versus like the approach they had with their SEO strategy? Oh, no, everything's because of, of SEO. So look at it this way. When Amazon was created, they had no brand recognition. Keep Remember, like Walmart is the largest, I, I think Walmart's the largest retailer in the world right? Most people live near a Walmart. If you don't live near a Walmart, you live near a Target. You never heard of this website, Amazon. What Amazon's success was driven on the back of SEO. So as people started using search, they started finding Amazon URLs. Remember, Amazon never, ever did any advertising. So Amazon didn't start advertising until a few years ago. So they never did any paid advertising on any of their products. They never, they didn't really do any like brand advertising for themselves. Like now you watch a Super Bowl game. There's like, you know, an Amazon ad of like someone delivering happy box. We all know about Amazon, but Amazon was, would had no brand recognition. They'd never done any advertising. It was really driven around word of mouth. Like someone buys from Amazon and they tell other people to buy from Amazon or search. Like they created potentially what is the largest e-commerce brand in the world off of the back of SEO. That's incredible. I actually did not know this. I, I feel like I should have, but I've always just known Amazon as Amazon. But like I'm hearing from you that like the early days of Amazon was largely a search strategy. And when would that have been? Would that have been like the mid to late 2000s? Is that when that have, when they initially saw that success? And I, of course, they're still seeing it. But when was that initial work done at Amazon? So I don't, I, I, this is not like an inside view. This is like, I mean, I've talked to Amazon SEO people, but my, my assumption is, is that when they built the product, they built the SEO into the product because they did not focus on this other stuff. They did not focus on like, how do we do SEO? They didn't focus on how do you do SEO is just a natural part of how they built the website. And I, this part I do know for a fact is those other sites like Target, Best Buy, Walmart, and probably a bunch of other e-commerce retailers, they did not focus on that. The way they focused on SEO was your traditional build content, long form content, buy links, and really all that. Amazon didn't do any of that. And again, Amazon was a startup. In the late 90s, Amazon was a startup, non-existent, no one ever heard of it. And they, they built a lot of the, that customer acquisition off of people searching for products and finding products on Amazon. That's so interesting. Would Amazon be the best example then of product-led SEO? I think there are a lot of great examples. TripAdvisor is the same thing. And TripAdvisor is product-led SEO. So TripAdvisor's product is reviews. 
and they built it. Now, if you were, again, taking two approaches, if you were building a travel review site, you could do a long form content. Like, um, I don't know. I, I like the points guy. Points guy is a red ventures product. The points guy is not a guy, a single guy anymore. It's, it's like lots and lots of people. It's a big part of a big brain, but the points guy is workers and writers from the points from red ventures. They go and stay in hotels and write long form content and take pictures of, and we give hotel reviews and product reviews. TripAdvisor is not like that. They built a product that allows users to come in and fill out the review product, any user to come in and fill out the review product. Same idea, TripAdvisor did it at scale across almost every language in the world. PointSky is not at scale, just content-led SEO. So if you search for uh, Rich Carlton Miami reviews, could the PointSky show up number one? Maybe, TripAdvisor might show up number two. Actually, they probably don't, TripAdvisor just shows up number one. But if you search for every obscure hotel in the entire city of Miami, more than likely in aggregate, TripAdvisor is driving more review traffic than the points guy is on that single review. So with the fundamental shift in SEO, does the points guy go away and TripAdvisor manages to succeed? No, not at all, actually. I think they're both at risk on certain areas. So if you Google something like Miami Beach top rated hotel, if all you're looking for is some names, then TripAdvisor and the points guy are both at risk of SGE giving the answer to that. Now the points guy is very different and I don't think all their SEO traffic gets upset is because the points guy, if you ever read any of their, their posts, they're long form and they're emotional. They're not SEO posts. So if you are the type of person that wants a long form post, you want to know what the Ritz-Carlton in Miami is really like. If you want to know like what the food is like, that cannot be answered in a quick piece. So there are, again, there are people that just wanted like a quick answer. SGE is definitely going to upset that, but for the readers that are looking for long form, the points guy is giving that answer. Now, who does get upset? Well, it's the, the person that does not put the passion into writing those reviews. They, they just did it at scale. They were like, all right, I want to be competitor to TripAdvisor, so I'm now going to go on Fiverr and I'm gonna hire all these people that are gonna write these boring formulaic approaches to reviewing all the hotels in Miami. That gets upset because there's no emotion and no information. So is the bar now just significantly higher for anyone who wants to start a new SEO channel in 2023, 2024? I would think so. I think that the, that the bar has moved to where it should have been. So you can't just do SEO because it exists. You don't have to satisfy users like you always should have done. I have to ask real quick. I know you've mentioned on your website and on LinkedIn that companies go astray uh, when it comes to product-led SEO. What are one of those one or two big mistakes you see companies make with product-led SEO? The biggest mistake anyone's going to make around product-led SEO is try to do any sort of large-scale product, and we could call it programmatic. I think we should define what programmatic is, without considering the user. So if you say, oh, I'm going to do product-led SEO, I'm going to build this huge product, and I'm going to do programmatic. So what programmatic means is instead of writing scaled content, or instead of writing content, which doesn't scale, like content, you have to go to each individual writer, have each individual writer write 1,000 words, 1,500 words. Programmatic means you create some sort of mashup of pulling in different pieces of content that creates one long form piece of content. So Zillow is a great example of programmatic. No one at Zillow wrote any actual Zillow page. They pull in 
photos from like, let's say the MLS, they pull in valuations from each government website. They pull in school reviews from a different website. So they, that's a mashup, that's programmatic. So a big mistake anyone will make is they look for the, the lowest hanging fruit to create a product out of programmatic without considering if users will actually engage with it. So an example could be, and I see this often, is sometimes companies like to make programmatic led SEO approach, product led SEO approaches for e-commerce without considering does the user care? So uh, like, here's a great example. Someone wants to buy Nike running shoes. So Nike running shoes, that's one top level category. Now from the Nike, if you go on to Nike and you look at all the Nike running shoes they have, there are lots and lots of facets to each of these shoes. So you might take one specific brand. I don't know. Um, let's make it up because I don't actually know it. So Nike Air Runner 52, right? So you have Nike Air Runner 52. It comes in black. It comes in green and it comes in black with red shoelaces and comes in green with like polka dot shoelaces, all these different facets. Now the user might care when they pay, but they don't care when they search. So you might think, oh, this is great. I can build a programmatic approach by now having a polka dot plus green, polka dot plus yellow. Then like you have all these facets and you now create, took one product and made it into 50 different pages. That is product led. It is programmatic, but the users don't care. And you've now created too many pages. The danger in this is Google now sees you have so many pages. I know that everyone goes back and forth about this concept of crawl budget. I think crawl budget is absolutely real. If you think about Google as a profitable company, every time Google crawls a website, it costs them money. And Google does not spend resources on every single website and every single company on an even basis. So Wikipedia, large website, very authoritative. So they might give Wikipedia more credibility, in theory, more crawl budget than they might give a brand new, I don't know, brand, encyclopedia startup. Let's say Wikipedia part two. Like you can go and clone the whole Wikipedia and you will not have the same traffic as Wikipedia and even have the same crawl as Wikipedia because you do not have that authority. You don't have that crawl budget. So I think crawl budget is absolutely real. Now, when you create 50 pages off the same product, you're hurting, in theory, you're hurting that crawl budget because users don't care about all these different facets, but you're requiring Google to waste the resources on it. You're, in, you're theoretically hurting some other part of the website. So that's a big mistake I see everyone make. Like they look for a shortcut to lots and lots of pages as a shortcut to lots and lots of traffic without actually considering the user. Just so I've got it. So product-led SEO does often require a programmatic strategy, but programmatic SEO might not be effective if there's then not a product-led SEO strategy behind it that actually makes those programmatic pages useful and helpful for a searcher. And that might be an area where someone could go astray. Did I, did I understand that right? So I think it's important to really highlight that product-led SEO is not programmatic SEO and programmatic SEO is not product-led SEO. You could do product-led SEO manually. You could create products for your users. You could create a thousand manually curated product experience pages, or you could do it programmatically and you could have tens of thousands, which is more possible when you do it programmatically, or you could have programmatic SEO that is just mashups of different things, but is not actually a product-led approach. So they're not one and the same. Programmatic is a tool to achieve pro product-led and programmatic is also not product-led. So is that, does that make more sense? 
That makes sense. So you can have programmatic that's not product-led and programmatic might be a path to product-led, but you could also build a product-led strategy without programmatic. A hundred percent, right. Like you could not build Zillow manually. You could potentially, let's say in a smaller space, I don't know one, like TripAdvisor is a bad example, but let's say you're reviewing clothing irons. So you could make a clothing iron, trip advisor for clothing irons. There aren't that many. You could do a product-led approach to clothing irons, just like TripAdvisor manually without doing programmatic. Thank you for this education. This has been, this has been I'll at least buy your book after this. And hopefully all of our listeners do too. So if it's okay with you, I've got like five or six, which is a little bit more than normal rapid fire questions that I'd like to ask. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. So my first one is I saw on LinkedIn recently that you wrote AI written content is going to be the end of field of dreams SEO, where all you have to do is write content and expect that users will show up. Generative AI allows any website to have content on any topic. So content alone is no longer a moat. My question here is, should we be using AI generated content on our websites? Yes. AI, generative AI or AI written content is just a tool to create content. It's a, a tool to create bad content and it's a tool to create good content. So without generative AI, a lot of people use Fiverr or Upwork or any, any source of poorly written content. So generative AI can be a source of poorly written content or it can be a source of great content. It's not the writer that's the problem. It's the usage of the content. So I don't think there's any hard, and Google themselves said AI written content is fine. It has to be helpful to users. You've got a hundred grand and you've got 10 years. Would you rather stick that hundred grand in Google stock and you can't touch it for 10 years or in OpenAI's private stock at currently, let's call it like a hundred billion dollar valuation? I'd put it in Google all the way. I think OpenAI is way overvalued. <laughs> Gen Z SEOs, do you, because you and I, we both got to SEO just by kind of figuring out how to get people to our website via search and that being a great channel. Do you think like there will be another generation of SEOs? Will there be like a Gen Z SEO cohort? I think SEO is changing. I think Gen, the newer crop of SEO is going to understand like TikTok SEO in a way that other like people that have been doing SEO for a longer time and aren't necessarily on TikTok won't. So Gen Z SEO will be totally different. The millennial SEO will look down on Gen Z and say they're doing it all wrong, but I think that's just the way of nature. Millennial SEO, we had it so good for so long. Uh, ranking for keywords like car insurance deductible. My next question is on all of this change. Is this ultimately in change in regards to search and the UX UI around it. Is this ultimately going to be a good thing for like Google's AdWords business, do you think? Google is a huge company, so everything will ultimately be good for Google's ads business. I in the near term, I don't think it'll be good for Google's ads business. It changes everything for them and big companies don't like change. Worst clients. What makes a client just terrible to work with? One of my worst clients was one of the first clients I signed as uh, when I started consulting. The red flag for anyone is if a client tries to negotiate or they use a low anchor. So this particular client, they agreed to what I thought was a high and good price, but they referenced the fact that their last SEO consultant was charging them $100 an hour. So if you're charging $100 an hour, anybody out there, don't do that, charge more. But the fact that they put that low anchor out there meant that no matter what, they were going to think I was too expensive. And they continuously told me and they continuously were unforgiving about that fact. And when I delivered to them the ultimate product, 
which they've since gone to make tens of millions of dollars from, they were like, this wasn't worth it. We could have gotten this for $500. Bag links, are, are they more important or less important in 2024? Way less important. The same Google that can write content out of thin air can also use fancy AI to decide if links are valuable or not. Well, this has been such an awesome episode. We're going to include a few links in the show notes to a couple of the different LinkedIn posts that we've talked about, as well as to your book, which I'm going to buy right after this. And check out my newsletter too, productletseo.substack.com. That's uh, where I write longer form stuff. My, my recent post on like how to do forecasting based on TAM, I'm really proud of. Yeah, we will 100% include a link to that post in the show notes as well and to your newsletter, which everyone listening should subscribe to. But is there anything else you want to say to our listeners? Thank you so much for coming on. SEO is changing. Get ready. This episode of the Optimized Podcast is brought to you by a special sponsor. If you're anything like me, you've probably got a lot of content that's not very well optimized and it can be a total pain in your butt to optimize it and ultimately get it to rank better in search. And that's what Positional does. Positional has an incredible tool set for everything from content optimization to technical SEO and planning your editorial calendar. And if you don't know by now, I'm one of the co-founders of Positional and I'd love for you to check it out. 